man, you better get yourself a castrato for this, because it's a little out of my range. Something bothering you, Beef? Swan, this was scored for a check. I'm not doing it in drag. You can sing it better than any bitch. You don't know how right you are, Goliath. Okay, boys, from the bridge, hit it. I like it. Keep working on it. Drop an octave here, change a line there. Give it a beat. Make it completely yours. Let's go. Thank you for tuning in to a very suspect podcast. Here's Lewis and Glenn. But, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely... Uh probably talk about Phantom of Paradise. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, because I mean, that's the thing that, you know, a lot of people, you know, love him for the most. <laughs> I know, because he's, I mean, he's a big part of Phantom of the Paradise, you know, not only yeah. does he perform as, as Swan, but he wrote the music as well. Yeah, know? yeah. Like, um... Or the whole thing. Everything yeah. from lyrics to music on down. That's mm-hmm. his, all his baby. And it is a great performance, and it's a great movie, and the music is, is terrific. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of De Palma's greatest films, and I and I told him so myself. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't remember what it was. I think it was about sometime in the late '90s or something. Uh, I ran into him during TIFF. It was outside uh, in front of the world's biggest bookstore. I was out there walking with my friend Dave Shaw, and we just uh, Dave sort of noticed him. He's like, "Oh my God, there's De Palma!" So of course he ran up to him and started badgering him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, so, and I'm just standing there listening to Dave talk to De Palma, and I don't really have—I I don't know—I guess I just didn't really feel like I had much to say to him. But at one point, I, I chimed in and I said, "Family of Paradise is my favorite movie of yours," and he, he just gave me this look, like, <laughs> like I shit in his cornflakes or something. And he just like looked at me like, "What? Really? What?" You know, like, like I like I should have probably said raising cane or something and he he would have been happy. But I, I said Family of Paradise, and he was just looked at me like bozo. <laughs> know what he's talking about i would i would agree with you it's it's a it's among my favorite movies period you know yeah, like I, yeah. I think it's just a, a great movie from beginning to to end you know i think the performances are, are great it's cheesy it's beautifully cheesy when it's supposed to be cheesy it's uh serious when it's supposed to be serious the the music is is terrific it's sung really well the bit <clears throat> bit players are really interesting and fun to look at and performances are all good no, for sure. Yeah. Everything, everything, every every element of the movie is well conceived and put together. I mean, mm-hmm. the songs are great. The cast is excellent, and and I remember for the first time I saw that it would have been probably when I was maybe around thirteen or something on CTV because you know they used to run it on late great movies constantly on Friday that's, nights. That's what I was going to say. Is that yeah. that was probably my first introduction too. And and for anybody that <clears throat> wasn't. Uh, didn't grow up around here the city tv was like this local tv station they would play all kinds of stuff like that's the first Mm -hmm. time i mean i think a lot of people were introduced them to some pretty out there movies uh, via city tv and especially because 
at the time, you you kind of flip through the stations, and you may not necessarily know what the hell it is that you're looking at mm. because you, you've missed the beginning part, and you kind of wait for for commercials to come on because sometimes they would uh, announce what what was playing, yeah. but. Yeah, like, uh, that's how I discovered it, too, and it just mesmerized me, you know? For sure, for yeah. sure. Stay with City TV as we take you away from all this regular programming stuff to show you what television really can be. Oh, I'm sorry, I was reading the wrong copy. Late Great Movies are next. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they ran it quite frequently it seems mm-hmm. so if you uh, kind of caught it halfway through one time maybe uh wait a few months and they'd run it again yeah i mean it seemed to be like i uh, i remember it's sort of a, a late night friday night thing like that was the kind of thing that showed up on friday nights i have a mem- memory maybe incorrect of memory that friday nights they had a tendency to like show like some of the rock and roll scene type movies they would show and things like that that's the way i kind of remember it that certain nights of the week you were more likely to get certain types of movies yeah yeah, and uh, that's my memory of that. Although I'm sure they ran it other nights of the week too, at different times. But that's that's definitely the first memory I have of seeing it and, and finding it to be really messed up. <laughs> yeah. You know, at, at 12 or 13, it was just kind of like, what the hell? And, and and creepy in a lot of ways too. I mean, like I think the first time I saw it, you know, and get his face slammed into the uh, record pressing, <laughs> I was just kind of like, what? What the hell? Well, you know, the, yeah, and it's it's you know, I mean, it, they use fisheye lenses, so it looks yeah. kind of bizarre and and split the screen, phantom, everything, you know, split so. screen, the the phantoms. Uh, uh, mask I think that was the debut really of strange. De Palma using split screen. I think that was the first film he used split screen. He became I, sort of a common thing for him afterwards, but I think that was the debut of that for him. Yeah, I think the use yeah. of split screen is great. I I yeah. don't know why people don't use that more. There's a real sense of, of foreboding and of uh, tension when you use a split screen because you're yeah. looking at you know cause and effect at the same time, and it's it, it's really jarring, you know. Totally. Yeah. And the thing I think I remember most though about watching that on CTV and just being kind of having my mind blown was the end of the movie. Yeah. When all the chaos breaks out there. And, you know, the concert's happening and crazy drug <laughs> blast hippies are all over the stage. Everybody's like, tripping yeah. and the music is droning and, you know, there's yelling and all kinds and the, of... And, you know, and the wedding ceremony's taking place and there's, you know, George Mamoli on stage as the Pope and, you know, all this kind of stuff is... <laughs> yeah. It's just ridiculous. And then when... <laughs> I mean, when the, when the shooting starts and everything, and the mask gets ripped off Paul's face, and you're just like, "What the hell?" I just remember like thinking, "This is crazy." Hippies crawling along the stage, along the floor. I mean, I think that kind of messed me up. I know, Maybe and it's what I am, and it's really sad too. You know, yeah, like, it's it's just a great movie. Absolutely yeah. great. Yeah, that scene that scene kind of blew my mind, and I I'm sure when I first saw it, I saw that scene, I saw part of the movie, but I didn't see the whole movie, and then I kind of made a note to like make sure I saw it again if it was listed on CTV again and then the, the TV guy would be like, okay, i got to remember to watch this one. Same with me, yeah. Because it was just like, seeing things like that was just like, what the hell? And I'm sure the first time I saw, you know, Beef on stage, I was like, what the hell? This, like, <laughs> yeah. this is amazing. <laughs> you, know? you know. Life at last and that whole performance. And, <laughs> and the performance of the other band, too, doing that somebody super like you at the whole Kiss Alice Cooper kind of thing, Screaming Lord, such kind of vibe. I mean, that whole thing just blew my mind. You know? I know. Yeah. 
and it it holds up beautifully. I mean, I see it every once in a while, and it's it's just as good as the first time I've seen it. You know? Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, I bought the Blu-ray when that came out because that Screen Factory Blu-ray is unbelievable. The amount of special features on there. Yeah. Guillermo del Toro sitting down for a 90-minute interview with Paul Williams. Just so many amazing features on that thing. I mean, that was one of the better releases at that time period that Screen Factory had done. It was just like they went all out on that. Oh yeah, to this date, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and justifiably so. They know that this is a movie that people out there have major love for, and and Canadians in particular. Yeah, that's know. right. Uh huh. Winnipeg. Winnipeg. They you know. would have the uh, their convention, their get together, their screening every year. Phantom yeah. Belusa. They did for yeah. a variety of years. Peaking and finally getting him to appear. Paul Williams finally appeared at the final one. I don't know if De Palma ever showed up. I'm not sure. I was going to ask yeah. you. I hadn't heard. I mean, everybody else, from what I've read, Yeah, has. most of the other people have shown up over over the different years. But Paul was like the final grab. I think they got him on the last year they did it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if De Palma ever showed up. And frankly, like I said, De Palma seemed to always be dismissive of that, that movie, I guess until Scream Factory approached him and mm-hmm. found out there was these people like Guillermo del Toro and various people who were like, this movie's a masterpiece. And I think he started to warm up to it finally. Yeah, I think he probably had, uh, I don't know, he'd be... Being a director and an auteur, he probably wanted to focus more on his serious projects, and I put yeah. quotation marks over serious as opposed yeah. to something like that, which he probably saw as a bit of a, I don't know, a laugh, maybe not sure. as, not not to be taken nearly as, as seriously, but it's it's technically and everything about it, like we said, is just great. It's just my guess, and I, I could be wrong on this, is that he kind of, at the time, let's say in the late 90s when I ran into him uh, young, uh, by in front of the world's biggest bookstore, at that point in time, I think he looked at that film as being a relic of the early 70s. It was too representative of that era, and I think maybe there was a little bit of embarrassment about that. Like, that movie, in his mind, dated horribly because of the content and the look of it. But that's exactly what people loved about it as the decades went on. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think he saw that. But it wasn't, maybe it wasn't until he started to hear from people that, oh, this person loves this movie. This person thinks this is one of my better movies. I think he started to think, maybe there's something there. Yeah, that's true. Because yeah. he kind of he kind of downplayed it for a long period of time. You know, like it was like nothing really. It really wasn't part of his catalog that he really thought much of. Mm-hmm. The terrible thing about Phantom was when we finished it, we, we made it for about a million two or something, and Fox offered us two million dollars to buy it. And I was like, holy mackerel. Unfortunately, we had not taken out E&O insurance, so we were hit with like four lawsuits immediately. Universal said we were infringing on their Phantom of the Opera. I had a company called Swan Song Records that was a name of a real record company. The picture was called Phantom. We had to change that because of the Phantom comic strip. It was very successful in L.A. It was very successful in Canada. And France, it played for like 10 years. But like New York, it just died. I mean, I remember going to the theater and like there was nobody there. Finley and I outside the theater looking for a line that didn't exist. But I guess he started to change his mind because then when he started getting involved and was willing to take part in special features and everything, it was like, okay, you know, maybe he was beginning to get it, that this this was not his worst movie. Yeah. <laughs> There's worse films in that catalog, that's for oh, sure. That's for sure, yeah. yeah. Although I like a lot of his stuff. Yeah, I like a lot of his films, yeah. too. I mean, I would say probably after Fam of the Paradise, I think Carrie's still one of my top. I think so, too. I, and again, yeah. the split screen just works so well yeah. in that, you know? Yeah. 
And I mean, yeah. I, I like a, I like a lot of his movies. I mean, I would say even one of his latter day movies I, I think is amazing. I still think Carlito's Way is a great movie. That's great, yeah. You know, uh, and Untouchables is is a great movie too. You know, like he's done a lot of really interesting stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I like about all that early '80s junk too. Whether whether it's whether it's Scarface or Dress to Kill or Body Double, I think those are all cool movies. Yeah, yeah. You know, but uh, but yeah, I mean, to like sort of like poo poo Phantom of the Paradise as being kind of junk in his mind. It was like, dude, you're underestimating yeah. the greatness of that movie, and maybe he just got a bias towards it because you know he looks back at the time he made it, and he probably thinks, oh, I wasn't a very good filmmaker then, and you know, I didn't maybe didn't have the right kind of budget and blah blah blah. But frankly. From what we see on screen, everything's there. Like, he didn't need any more money. That movie is not wanting for anything. It no. looks amazing. 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe. From Greece to glitter wow! and beyond. The story of a sound, the man who created it, the girl who sang it, the monster who stole it, and the phantom who haunts the paradise, the ultimate rock palace. Phantom of the Paradise. My music is for Phoenix. Only she can sing it. Anyone else that tries dies. Phoenix. Phoenix. Well, you told me one time that you'd be somebody that you weren't working just to survive. And you better get yourself a castrato for this. Paul Williams as Swan. And the angels that defeated them. I want you to stop terrorizing the paradise and rewrite your cantata. And the Phantom. A lot of that is to do with the, the, the art design and everything. I mean, who was that? It was that uh, Jack Fisk, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think he was involved with a lot of the creation of the look of that thing. And I mean, that movie looks great. So if there was some short you know, comings there in the budget, it's not really noticeable to us as viewers. The movie looks fucking amazing. I don't yeah. know where, where, there's some, where there's some shortcomings. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I don't know. You know but, maybe just in his mind, it's just not his best work. He didn't know what he was doing. He was still working on becoming a better director. So who knows? I don't know. Works great, and it's oh, funny. Maybe, maybe, maybe he has a problem with, with Paul Williams. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, I'm never going to cast anyone that short as my lead again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I learned one lesson from that. Your lead shouldn't be that short. Your lead shouldn't be shorter than the female lead leads in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and. Uh, so, uh, and you mentioned uh, um, that Williams was in an episode. Well, it wasn't really an episode. It was a special of uh, the Hardy Boys. The Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew meet Dracula. And I only yeah. want to mention that now because he, he's essentially playing a swan-type character, a much smaller role. But, sure, sure. You know, yeah. But he appears, he sings a song. There's you know a horror theme to the whole thing. And that's what drew me to that. I never really watched either of those shows. But anyway, Yeah, yeah. Me. 
Yeah, yeah I don't know if I've ever seen that appearance. No. Uh, you should check it out. It's, I mean, it's obviously much on the cheesier, Brady, obviously. Sure. Obviously, on the Brady Bunch Hour thing that he was on, he did perform the hell of it on there, which was interesting because, I mean, that would have been a couple of years after the movie. Yeah, well, I think he sings the same song on uh, the uh, Hardy Boys. What year was the Hardy Boys, though? I don't know. It wasn't that far after um, Phantoms of Paradise. Phantoms okay. of Paradise came out in 74? 74. 74, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, Hardy Boys ran, it was probably 77, I guess, 79, between there. Yeah. I would, oh, I would, yeah, so I would that's even later it. than the, uh, probably than the uh, Brady Bunch Hour thing. Mm. That was probably 76 or 77. So it's kind of interesting that even a couple of years down the line, he was still throwing that song out there into things where he thought it would fit. Mm-hmm. You know? Or maybe it had nothing to do with him. Maybe it was the people from the show saying, hey, we would like you to do this song because it's going to fit this horror theme or whatever. So True, yeah. And he, was, he was just game for it. Why not? Whatever. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And frankly, I mean, like, it was a big role for him. I mean, at that time, he had a lot of small roles in movies, but mm-hmm. he didn't often get the lead role. And that was a, that was a rare example of that. I mean, he did eventually get other lead roles and things. I know there was a TV movie from, I think it was 82, called Rooster, which uh, was him and Pat McCormick in the lead roles. Basically, they were reprising their, you know, Smoking the Bandit characters, but not really. <laughs> they were, it was the same idea, but they weren't the same characters. If you remember in Smoking the Bandit, it was Little Enos and Big Enos. Right. Well, this was not that. I think his I think his name was Rooster Steel, and the other guy, Pat McCormick's character, had a, uh, whatever name. But it was like two guys that basically teamed up to solve a crime of uh, like some sort of arson case or whatever. And one was a private detective, and one was something else. And uh, I've seen some of it online. It looked really dumb and really stupid. But what do you expect? It was a TV movie of, <laughs> yeah. of uh, the early '80s. But it did have a pretty crazy cast. Uh, I'm looking at this note I kept I wrote down for the movie, and it was like beyond the the two leads of, of Paul Williams and Pat McCormick. It also had Ed Lauder, Jill St. John, Charlie Callis, Lara Parker, John Saxon, Eddie Albert, and Marie Osmond. Weird. <laughs> so I mean, those are TV movies. You know, that's the kind of casting you would get in a TV movie. But mm. you know, it's funny. You know, yeah, he definitely uh, he definitely uh, would take any sort of work in movie and TV. You know, so. yeah. But when you look at the early days of his acting, like I said, with like the loved ones being, I think, the very first credit he has, because that was probably 65. You know, after that, he was he worked with some interesting directors. In 1970, he had a small role in Watermelon Man, you know, by Melvin Van Peebles. Oh, yeah. And uh, he was also in uh, a small, tiny part in Arthur Penn's The Chase from 66. Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah, just a tiny little role, apparently. But, I mean, this is what, in the 60s, when he was just trying to make it as an actor and trying to start an, an acting career, he was taking these tiny little parts in movies. But he ended up being, you know, in interesting director's films. So, that's kind of neat. And, of course, another one of his big roles that people may know him from, although he's unrecognizable in it, is in Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. yeah. Yeah, he uh, he plays kind of a, a genius ape, doesn't he? He's basically the Zayas character, you could say again, almost for the movie. Uh, maybe not as much of a leader as Zayas is. He seems to be lower on the, on the totem pole. Yeah, do you remember his name? Virgil. 
Virgil, that's it. And he also kind of becomes an outcast, obviously, when he just sort of takes off, right? You know, it's been years since I've seen the movie, honestly. But he kind of doesn't he alienate himself from a lot of the the, the ape community, and yeah, then he ends up on the run with the human characters. From what I remember, like he he knows he's aware of the history of the humans and mm-hmm. the evolution of the apes, much like like uh, Zeus, right? Sure. Yeah. Doesn't he? Except, I mean... Zeus, except Zeus keeps it under his hat. He knows this stuff, and he basically, for the better of the apes, does not want to acknowledge it. Whereas I think in this, like I said, it's been years since I've seen it. I think Virgil gets himself removed, sort of from that from that group of people, and then he ends up like a fugitive as well. Mm-hmm. Like, do you remember yeah. how he's basically on 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 the road? You could say with the with the with the human running. Uh, I mean, I can't even remember what the astronaut's name is. <laughs> Me neither. I mean, I probably should have, you know, taken a look at it, but um, yeah, but I didn't. I can't remember. I mean, I've seen it several it's been times. Years. But yeah, it years. has been. And honestly, I gotta say, it is not one of the better Planet Apes films. It, no, it's the worst of, of the original five. <laughs> and I mean, and that's putting it below Escape. And I don't think Escape is any masterpiece either, but at least it has some good moments and it has a fantastic final you know, segment. You know, the, the end of Escape is amazing, but Battle, I mean, there's a lot of problems with Battle. Battle didn't really have much of a budget. Every mm-hmm. single Apes film, you know, had a smaller budget than the one before it. Yeah, unfortunately. And, and so by the time they got to the last one, it almost seemed like a slightly higher budgeted made-for-TV movie. That's true. I mean, some of the ape masks and everything were essentially like you can buy them at, you know, Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that was true of the last few films where there was a lot of that in the background scenes. But the difference is at least the films before it were better movies. Mm -hmm. Now, Battle just kind of feels like, I don't know, it feels like it's retread of almost some of the same ground might have been covered in the second one and beneath. Yeah. In some ways, I mean, with the with the mutant community out there and all that kind of thing. And obviously they're not as advanced as the underground dwellers of, of beneath with their mental telepathy and all that. Yeah. These people just seem like battle scarred, radiated, you know, semi humans, you know, <laughs> but I mean, I don't know, even their makeup is garbage and everything too. Whereas you look at beneath and there, at least the makeup was great. And I mean, it's just an infinitely better movie anyways. We want guns. Now, the final chapter in the incredible ape saga. There it is, our wars. This is the hell my forefathers used to speak about. This background radiation alone will give us 300 rentgens an hour. The battlefield, a dead city 12 years after the ultimate bomb has been dropped. The prize the right to inherit what's left of the earth. The contestants, ape against man. The most unbelievable showdown ever filmed. As the mutants, strange transformed men who live underground like moles, battle the apes to decide who will be master and who will be slain. They're getting away. Murdered my son. 
We will smash the human, and then we will smash Caesar. I don't want to have to remember my husband. I want to love him now. But we who survive create a new race. In the aftermath of his victory, the surface of the world was ravaged by the vilest war in human history. But it gave him a, a chance to, you know, be in a, in a theatrically, you know, released film. And, uh, yeah, it was a good Yeah, and you know what, also, I saw an interview with him not too long ago. Uh, I just found it online somewhere, and it's it's basically him in a very brief piece talking about what he is most, what the questions that he gets the most about his work. He said, still to this day, is Battle for the Planet of the Apes and his voiceover work, I think, where he did the Penguin for a Batman cartoon. That's the most questions he gets? He says that, you know, the most mail he gets, and the, basically, yeah, when people come up to him, it's about Battle for the Planet of the Apes or the voice of the penguin in this Batman cartoon of the 90s. Wow, that's weird. Your aim appears to be a little off today, Batman. I don't think you can hit the broadside of a barn, let alone the broadside of this bird. You're blind as a bat, sightless and helpless. So, so yeah, I mean, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, just because it's a Planet of the Apes movie, is the kind of thing that obviously has a wide base of people out there. Much wider base than Phantom of the Paradise is going to have, even though it's an infinitely better movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a much bigger vehicle for him in Battle. Battle, I mean, in Phantom, I should say. In Battle, he's just one of many people in a small role. Mm-hmm. The thing that's kind of amusing about Paul Williams in a, in a Planet of the Apes movie is that Paul Williams has such a distinctive voice. Mm-hmm. That for people who know who he is, you hear that voice and you go, "I think that's Paul Williams." Not to mention <laughs> yeah, the size. You know, like, between the size and the voice, you're like, "That's Paul Williams." Kind of like another character in that movie, which is John Huston. You know, it yeah. doesn't matter what kind of makeup he's wearing. You hear that voice, and that's John Huston. You can, if you know John Huston, you can tell that's John Huston. You don't that's need true. to see who's under the makeup. And I think that's the same thing with Paul Williams. It's obvious it's Paul Williams and the size obviously of the man and even with the make a, a makeup on you look at that face and you go that's Paul Williams I was about to say yeah like I don't know if I'm projecting but it kind of looks like Paul Williams which yeah. I find you know, I find is the case with a lot of the you know apes movies is the makeup kind of looks a little bit like the actors underneath yeah him, you know? yeah like Roddy McDowell yeah I mean he 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 looks like that in some ways. Yeah. If Roddy McDowell was crossed with an ape. That's, <laughs> That's what, what he it would look like. <laughs> so, I mean, it makes sense. And actually, speaking of that, there is something pretty funny. When Battle came out uh, and was released in, released in the theaters, Paul Williams appeared on Johnny Carson like he did, you know, 4,000 other times. Mm-hmm. But on that particular episode, he came on, he was introduced and he came on to sing and he came out dressed as Virgil, complete full makeup. And sang a song in full ape makeup. <laughs> you know, so that, that that's a cool appearance. I was reading about that uh, online. I've never actually seen the clip, but that's like, yeah, that's totally cool. That's pretty neat, yeah. I mean, th- that also happened on the Carol Burnett show at one point where Roddy McDowell was a guest, and he did some skits and everything with her and just as himself. But then in one skit, he came on as Cornelius. <laughs> wow. The whole skit was him as, as Cornelius, but unaware that he was Cornelius. He was just out there. I was like, he was just Roddy. And they're like, you're looking a little different today, Roddy. He goes, I don't know what you mean. 
It was pretty cool. But, Cheesy. But yeah, you know, Battle is is not a classic of, of an Apes film. But, you know, it was it was a cool vehicle for him to get, obviously. It was, uh, you know, it's de- and it's definitely something that's remained uh, a, a point of interest in his career to a lot of his fan base. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that he was in an Apes movie. So. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. And although I don't love it, I still like it more than the Tim Burton Apes movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which is definitely the worst of the Apes movies. Yeah. Do you even consider it an ape movie? I will, in, in the same way that I consider the most recent batch Apes movies. Yeah. You know, but the recent batch era. are really good, though. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. That's why I said it's the worst. I mean, I think Tim Burton's... It, it was surprising, because I thought Tim Burton would actually deliver something better. I don't mm-hmm. know. Not I mean, right. he brought some different angles into it, of course, and everything. But then he left other angles the same. You know, the way the apes moved was obviously more traditional for a real apes move, especially when they ran. But, you know, I don't know. There was just something about the whole film that just felt odd. Yeah. I don't know. It just didn't really work for me. Whereas the recent trio, I think it is, it's three, right? Yeah. Mm, yeah. They were, uh, they were, they were good. They were very enjoyable, I thought. You yeah, know, they, I thought so too. They kind of had the right feel. I think something was askew in the uh, Tim Burton one. Something just didn't feel right. It was mm. like, I don't know. I don't know. Something's something's missing. Or maybe there's something in here that shouldn't be there. Yeah. I couldn't quite figure it out. But, you know, whereas Battle, it's got some interesting moments in it. Actually, is it is it, uh, is it Paul Williams who actually yells the line, Now fight like apes! <laughs> I don't know. You remember uh, that? Yeah, I'll have to look that up. And it's a fake out you know. scene where they're out there in the battlefield with like the the mutant type underground dwellers, and everybody is sort of being defeated. And then I don't know if they're all like faking it for a while so they can stage a bigger comeback. But then at one point, I'm pretty sure it's Virgil who turns around and goes, "Now fight like a." <laughs> the line sounds familiar. And, yeah, and yeah. if it's him, I'll I'll find it and I'll I'll put it on right now. Yeah, do some audio. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, no, I I'm not sure. I think it is. Uh, I think it is him who says that. Like I said, it's been years since I watched this movie mm-hmm. because it's really the one I I never think to go back and watch. It's that and Escape that I usually don't bother with. Mm-hmm. And I still, unlike most people, prefer Beneath and Conquest over the original. Really, I yeah. I love the original though. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the original is good, and I would pl- I would place that as my third. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. It's it's the it's the nihilism and bleakness of of uh, beneath that I really appreciate, and conquest too. Especially when you see conquest in its uncut form. Have yeah, you ever seen that, that version? I have. Yeah, it's it's much more brutal. You're talking about that the scene, the the kind of the, the fight. Yeah, well, yeah. There's, just, there's a bunch of different violent moments throughout that last 45 minutes or whatever that are just cut out of the other version, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's 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 very different. It's a much grimmer vision even. And, you know, the original one's grim enough as it is, but this one gets a lot darker. Yeah. And I think that's what I like about Beneath, too. Beneath is so dark and, you know, everybody dies. It's like a Peckinpah movie or something, you know. It's yeah. like, just kill everybody off by the end. Whereas Battle has some of those same elements, but I don't know. Again, it seems like more of a PG version of it. It seems like a TV movie PG version of it. Yeah. yeah. So we're kind so, of digressing. I know. So it's, it's, it's too bad that, you know, Paul Williams had to be in an Apes film that was not the best of the bunch. I would have rather seen him be in Beneath, for instance, or even Conquest. But what are you going to do? Yeah, at least he's in an Ape film. Yeah, I'm sure he was glad to get the gig. It was three and a half hours of makeup every morning. 
And my breath at that hour, you, you, you know, they should have given the makeup artist a, a hazard, you know, hazardous duty check. Uh, it was amazing because of the cast. I mean, John Houston was in the cast, Rodney McDowell, great people and all. I get more fan mail for doing the voice of the Penguin and appearing in Battle for the Planet of the Apes than I do for, for, you know, for almost anything I've done. I'm not sure about how that one did in the theater in comparison to the others. I think it was a gradual slide down even in the box office for all of them. But I'm sure it still did okay. Yeah, yeah, respectively anyway. Yeah, exactly. Maybe not in comparison to the first or anything like that, but it probably did okay. And, you know, I imagine the profit margin was greater since the budgets did get smaller and smaller with every movie. That's true, yeah. Yeah, which is unfortunate that that happened too. You'd think you have a, a good brand going that maybe you would try to make them stay at that certain level of quality, but that's not what they did. No. The studio got greedy and just said, yeah, let's make this with less money. It's not yeah. something that they did. I mean, now uh, sequels get increasing budgets, you know, sure, generally, exactly. until they, you know, stop. But exactly. but back then, you know, nobody really put much faith in, in sequels, really. Yeah, no, it was a pretty new concept at the time that some movie chain, a line like that could have five titles come out in a handful of years. Yeah. Yeah, it was unusual, but well, there you go. There you go. Paul Williams in an apes film. Not, <laughs> not, not the best film he would ever do. It, it's definitely no fan of the paradise, but you know, he at least he was in an apes film. That's true. And of, of course, one film we should also mention before uh, we wrap this thing up is mm-hmm. Stone Cold oh. Dead. When terror walks among us, and safety is only an illusion. When someone is out there watching, and anyone could be next. When there's nothing you can do, and no one can help. It only takes a split second to turn up Stone Cold Dead. Three dead women, two police detectives murdered in a city that's petrified. An exploration into madness. Thank you for coming, Doctor. What I want is a motive for these killings. He's not motivated by jealousy, money, or even sex. What is it then? Revenge. A terrifying adventure into the mind of a killer who could be anyone. The stranger on the street. He has no one he can trust. Let's go. The respected citizen. What's your hurry, White Sugar? Because I don't want to be seen with you. A man with connections. Pimp. More of a, uh, a traffic cop. I mean, I direct people to things that they're looking for. For this, they love me. Perhaps it is even someone you thought you knew. Someone very close to you. Someone you love. I'm looking for a killer. Is that all? Anyone could be the sniper. Even you, Sergeant. You knew both victims. That means something. <laughs> a lot of men out there who have a hate on for women. Oh, I'm so afraid. I'll buy you a drink. I'm just thinking how long it's been since I had a drink with a man I liked. Richard Krenner, Paul Williams, Linda Sorensen, and Belinda J. Montgomery. <laughs> Shot in 78 in Toronto. In Toronto. Toronto exploitation. uh, Yeah, and and it's classic Paul Williams because he plays a pimp. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, he's not a conventional pimp in this movie in the sense of, uh, I mean, yeah, his clothes are a little garish, but it's not over the top. It's not, maybe it's not the portrayal you would have had in some black exploitation films of a pimp, which would might be really extravagant clothing. This is uh, still 
extravagant, but it's not over-the-top extravagant. And as far as his behavior as a pimp, it's a little more restrained. Mm-hmm. I think there's only one point in the movie where he tries to show, you know, he's a badass and uses pimp hand on a bitch. <laughs> there's one scene in the, in, the, in, the, in the back in the back of his limo because of course he's got a limo that someone drives for him, mm-hmm. you know, and and so he doesn't. He sees uh, these track marks on one of his lady's arms and so he slaps her across the face and says, "I don't like to see that shit." <laughs> Hello, little girl. Would you like a ride in my shiny silver car? Sure, Julie. How far? As far as you want to go. You are much, much, much too much lipstick for my lady. God damn it! What do you do that for? Julie. You're putting a lot of money in that arm. I know where you get it. You're selling your ass up and down the street like a, like a common hooker. You're not a hooker, Bernice. Not a hooker, Bernice, you're my lady. Julie, don't Julie. Mason, pull over. Yeah, so, but uh, but then later on in the movie, you get a more sensitive side of him when he finds out that she dies, and uh, you know, so there's there's a moment where he breaks down. So it's a it's a different portrayal of, of, of a pimp. There's some sensitivity to the character as well. That's pretty interesting. But, uh, yeah, so it's kind of neat, and I mean, the movie itself is is kind of interesting too because. It uses Toronto in an interesting way. It's basically mostly sh- a lot of the young street scenes are sort of around the Young and Dundas area, just a little bit north of. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can totally spot locations and say, oh, yeah, well, there's Sam, the record man there. And there's this or that, there's that. And, you know, Gould Street and uh, various other streets in that area that you can kind of spot. So Toronto people can definitely recognize these areas when they see it. But then, of course, they also threw in a little bit of Times Square footage. Of course. <laughs> you know, so here's an edited shot here and you're going, that's not Toronto. And then you're going, that's Toronto. And then you're going, like, that's not Toronto. And you're like, that's Toronto. But, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of neat how it was done anyways. And, and the movie's actually pretty good. It, it even has giallo aspects to it as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, in the same way that another famous Toronto movie like American Nightmare would have little elements of that too. Right. And, you know, and Richard Crenn is the lead. He's the cop. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not bad. It throws in, of course, you know, Canadian actors too, like Alberta Watson and Michael Ironside has a tiny, tiny, tiny part in it. And, and uh, other tiny parts from other people too, like Leslie Donaldson has a tiny, tiny little character role in it. And uh, Paul Zaza did the music, you know, the whole thing. You know, pure it's, ca- it's, it's pure Canadian. Yeah. Pure yeah. Canadian tax shelter kind of uh, ridiculousness. Which we all love. Based on a novel by, uh, I think, a Toronto-based writer named Hugh Garner. It was called The Sin Sniper. Oh, right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of a cool role. And it's just, you know, again, seeing Williams as a pimp, you know, it's kind of like, hmm, why not? Who says a pimp has to be a big, tall guy or whatever? Why, you know, why can't it be a small little dude? Totally. So, you know, that's, so that's another interesting film of his catalog. But, I mean, the guy's, you know, he's he's done so much work that, you know, you can go on and on and on about the different kind of things he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, one thing I'd like to talk about uh, is the documentary. Mm-hmm. 
Paul Williams still alive, uh, premiered in, at TIFF in 2011. And uh, I went to the screening there, but I was also really lucky enough to be able to get into an after party that he attended. Right. That was very cool. Yeah. It was at Cherry Cola. And, um, a small little place. A small little place. And uh, I was able to get in because a friend knew someone who worked there as a cook. <laughs> and he literally opened the back door and let us through. Wow. <laughs> the cook's entrance. Yeah. So, I mean, because needless to say, with any sort of festival party, you have to know the right people to get right. into these things. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know the right people. <clears throat> and, uh, I, I, oh, I guess I did know the right person. I knew the right person to get me in there, even though he, because he knew a cook. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and, you know, and he's a big Williams fan too. So both of us brought down our Famine to Paradise album to get signed. And we got it signed. And uh, it was funny. It was it was typical, you know, when we approached Paul. First, he signed my friend Greg's, and then he signed mine. And when he signed mine, he looked up at me and said, "What's with you Canadians and Phantom?" <laughs> you know, I, I guess because he obviously knew from the whole Winnipeg thing and everything. And I was just like, "Yeah, man, Canadians love Phantom." You know, <laughs> what can we say? That's funny. And. Uh, and it was great. It was a fun little experience. It was a really cool night all around. I mean, I got to also speak to Paul um, Paul Williams. Besides speaking to Paul Williams, I also got to speak to Andy Kim. Mm-hmm. He he came to show up because he knew Paul, you know, because another songwriter. Right. So uh, they showed up and they talked for a while. But I ended up talking to Andy Kim for probably 15 minutes at one point, just standing there. He was just not really talking to him in the moment. I took my chance to run up and talk to him. And, yeah, and he, it was really cool. That's really and cool. also another thing that was kind of neat was Kathy Griffin showed up too. <laughs> oh, did she? Yeah, yeah. At one point, I'm standing there talking to Andy Kim. This woman's like two feet away from me talking to somebody else. I'm like, oh, I'm looking at her. And it's like, that's Kathy Griffin. <laughs> this is before all her shit came, all the shit came down with her <laughs> Trump stuff. How oh, wild. But, uh, yeah, so that was kind of cool. And, and Paul Williams performed that night. He brought his uh, his keyboard player that he would normally do shows with. And they just had uh, you know electric piano on stage for him, and uh, so that guy played the piano, and Paul sang, and it was a very very brief set, but it was it was cool in terms of what he chose to select. Mm-hmm. He didn't choose to do any of the big hit songs by the Carpenters or anything of that nature. He left all that aside. He played four songs. One of the songs was a new song. I think song number three he introduced as a new song that I'm, I've been writing lately and working on, and I would just like to play that. So he played it, and it sounded like a Paul Williams song. You know, everybody was fine with it, but nobody knew it. So, you know, whatever, it was fine. But it was the other three songs that made the night. He sat down on the piano. Uh, well, I shouldn't say he sat down on the piano. He sat down on the piano, but he didn't play the piano. His, his accompanist played the piano. He just sat beside him and sang. And so the first song they started with, the, the opener for the night, I was like blown away when I was like, oh, my God, he's playing it. He's playing the theme song from the boy in the plastic bubbles. Oh, really? That song, What Would They Say? <laughs> yeah. I couldn't believe it. When it that's where I was like, oh my God, that is, this is amazing. I can't believe he's playing this. So that was great. And then the second song was the Love Boat theme. <laughs> he, he felt he had to bring up the fact that, I don't know if many people know this, but I actually wrote the lyrics for the Love Boat. <laughs> and so they performed the Love Boat. That was ridiculous. And then, uh, like I said, then he played the new song. And then for his closer, he thought, well, okay, I gotta play, I gotta play a biggie here. But again, he chose not to play any of the hit songs that other artists recorded. Uh, he he chose to end with Rainbow Connection. Oh, great! Which was pretty amazing too. So yeah, everybody was happy. Although at one point, I think around 
right before he played the third song, he was asking people if there was any requests. And a couple of people around me started saying, Faust, play Faust. <laughs> and he was like, oh, you know, unfortunately, you know, I really don't play any of that stuff in our set. So we're, we're not really, you know, equipped to play that. Meaning, I guess the keyboard player doesn't know those parts, you know, mm. you know, which is probably just a way of saying, oh, man, really? You fucking Canadians. You always, <laughs> what the hell, man? I got to play Santa for you people. What the, what's the deal? Man. <laughs> So, yeah, it was unfortunate. I mean, it would have been great if he had played that or the hell of it or whatever, anything. I'd take anything from the movie. <laughs> but, no, that that wasn't to be. But i got to say, I was blown away when he played, uh, you know, What Would They Say from The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, which, That's... if you don't know, is John Travolta. You know? Yeah. And, That's pretty uh, crazy. Classic 70s TV movie. And uh, so that was really cool. So when it was done and he was, like, walking out, I had already gotten the autograph earlier before he started the set. But uh, when he was leaving the stage, I, he kind of walked by the area where I was. So I went up to him again and just said to him, I am so happy you played What Would They Say? <laughs> and he just kind of looked at me and smiled like, okay, goof, now leave me alone. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. would they say if we up and ran away from the roaring crowd and the worn out city faces would they carry on and on when they found out we were gone or would they let us go would they tag along or would they just leave us alone we live in the country Leave us alone, we'd make it just fine Happy in a one-room shack, and we'd not look back Now would we? What would they do if they found out we were through with the little lies? Downtown aggravations That we traded them away For a quiet country day That we had hoped to share Would they try to find out Where we were all Leave us alone We'd live in the country Leave us alone We'd make it just fine But hey, you know, I'm sure he was probably at the same time too thinking, well, I'm glad somebody at least knew what the song was and what it was from. And, you know. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, but, you know. Yeah, it's funny. Least, he probably at least at the very least knew that this this nerd at least is a fan. You know, he came with the fam record. And I even said to him at one point, I, I didn't want to bombard you with three records. So it was a really, it was a choice between do I bring Phantom, do I bring Someday Man, or do I bring the Holy Mackerel album? And I know when he said that, he's like, all great choices. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, but uh, at the same time, he was probably thinking, okay, yeah, this guy knows his shit. He's got the Holy Mackerel album and Someday Man. So, yeah. you know, and, 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 and of the three, he still goes for Phantom because, you know, Canadian. Yeah. You know, we just, we just side with the Phantom when, when given the option. <laughs> But yeah, so that was cool. So that's my Paul Williams brush with greatness. <laughs> cool. Definitely. And uh, it's funny, you know, I just thought of something else I wanted to bring up too. I had uh, 
I had clipped apart some Mad Magazine years ago, and I, I actually have it in front of me right now. There was a Mad Magazine piece on him that w- the joke was the way it is mm-hmm. and the way it would be. Do you right. remember these kinds of things where they yeah, would give I you do. two different panels? Mm-hmm. So here's the way it is. Four or five women surrounding Paul Williams in the center. One goes, ooh, that Paul Williams is such a living doll. And another one goes, he's so cute, I could just pick him up and cuddle him. And then the next panel, the way it would be, is the same four or five women standing around at a, in a place that, where you can see a sign in the back that says Singles Night. Paul Williams not looking like he does in the first panel, which is more of him in flashy threads. Uh, in the second panel, he's wearing a bow tie and a really you know, corny-looking suit. So he approaches these women, and the first woman goes, look at that little creep heading your way. I hope he doesn't ask me to dance. And the second one goes, me, me either. I hate dancing with midgets. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a, that's a prime example, again, of a Mad Magazine from the 70s of the way people looked at Paul Williams. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, if he didn't have that fame, he'd just be a short, annoying guy, goofy-looking, geeky dude approaching you at a single night. So, yeah, so that's, that's funny. But there you go. Is there anything else you want to say about him in particular? I love his his music, and I particularly love um, Rainbow Connection. And in fact, it was the final song that we played on our wedding night before ah. you know it was done. But that's all I wanted to say. And I just wanted to, in closing, say that anyone that uh, wants to be introduced to uh, who Paul Williams was and is, uh, what should they check out? Obviously, Phantom of the Paradise. Mm-hmm. And uh, what music would you say? Oh God! I mean, that's the problem. Oh, still there. alive, still mm-hmm. alive. They should they should check they out, should check out just the, as a the documentary. documentary. Yeah, mm-hmm. they should. Uh, I mean, obviously they should they should check out Found the Paradise, both the movie and the soundtrack album. Yeah, yeah. And which but, solo I mean, album? Yeah, I mean that's the thing. I mean, I mean, really, they'd probably be better off just one one of his greatest hits compilation albums or mm-hmm. CDs because then you're going to get a lot of the different songs from different records. But I mean, I think his his first few records in the 70s are all great. And in particular, I think Someday Man is an excellent record, even though that's one that's kind of overlooked the most of all his records. The A&M records had more attention paid to them because of the songs that were on them that were successful for other people. So that really wasn't the case with Someday Man, other than the fact that the Monkees covered the title track. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's such a vast catalog, and there's there's so much good stuff in, in it that... Yeah, just, there's a lot. There's a lot of Paul Williams people should be looking into. Okay. And I will close off with a, a remark that he had said on stage at the Grammy Awards in 2014 when he went up to accept the award for Daft Punk mm-hmm. for the uh, for the song that he was involved in, or the album, I should say, that he was involved in, because he was involved in two songs on the record. But here's what he said when he went up to accept the award for them. Back when I was drinking, I would imagine things that weren't there, and I'd get frightened. Then I get sober, and two robots called and asked me to make an album. <laughs> so, yeah, and I remember that because I remember watching that when that that aired. And I, and I was so happy that uh, Paul Williams was there to accept the award for Daft Punk because Daft Punk, you know, they don't want to be there to accept awards. They're robots. They don't care about award shows. Right. So, so he showed up, and uh, and I think that line kind of sums it up for him. Him trying to be cute <laughs> as well, you know, accepting an award. Because, yeah, the one thing you will learn about Paul Williams, if you watch the documentary Still Alive, is that guy had some pretty excessive years of drinking drugs mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, is often surprised that he's still around. So, yeah, I, I think that's a that's a funny little remark. And and it, actually, that, that song he did with Daft Punk, well, two songs, but one he actually sing, does lead vocals on, is very interesting, too. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he still manages to... Uh, 
attract the interest of people like that who, again, appreciate this back catalog of work and want to work with him now. So, which is also probably why he gets in young filmmakers' movies. You know, why people like the guy who made that ghastly love of Johnny X film would use someone like Paul Williams. I, I think he he resonates to different uh, generations too when people discover his work. So. Sure. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's uh, definitely like I said at the beginning, he's a Renaissance man. <laughs> he is. He's well, uh, capable of many things, and he's a very talented dude. And that's yep. our look at Paul Williams. Go check his stuff. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well. Okay. That's it. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Why are there so many songs about rainbows and what's on the Rainbows are visions, but only illusions. Rainbows have nothing to hide. So we've been told that some choose to believe it. I know they're wrong, wait and see. Someday we'll find it. The rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. Well, who said that every wish would be heard and answered if wished on the Thank you for listening. Music is played by Trigger Warning. Check out their Facebook page. Links are in the show notes. A very suspect podcast is copyright suspect video. All rights reserved. See you next week. I went away